0: The cool, dry breeze blowing off the not-so-distant Great Lakes washes across my face as I glance out at the farmland of northern Indiana. The floorboards creak as I pace across the porch of the aging farmhouse. Though unfamiliar with this part of the country, the landscape and the history, I'm struck with a sense of nostalgia, a longing for a past I never knew. Beside me is a script, with a small girl on the cover. Its yellow hue feels old and welcoming at the same time. I gently pick it up and turn to the first page of Girl from the North Country, and immediately I'm transported back to a simpler, harder time, yet somehow a time filled with hope. Hello, my name is Will Cloud, and you're listening to The Script Library, a podcast where I read scripts and then try to explain them well enough so that you'll pick them up and hopefully read them for yourselves. Uh, Today we have one of the most beautiful plays I've ever had a chance to read, Girl from the North Country. Now, I've reviewed another of playwright Connor McPherson's plays, before the podcast, of course. Uh, This play was called The Weir, but because I wasn't born in Ireland, the play just felt distant. This play, however, has such grit and honesty to it, and being from rural America, it certainly hit Closer to home. And several times throughout the read, I felt as if I was reading something more from the pen of Tennessee Williams. Uh, Truly, if Bright Star met The Glass Menagerie, you'd have something akin to this show. Uh, Something that makes this show extra special and extra grounded is the music, which we'll get into later. This is technically a jukebox with music and lyrics by the incomparable Bob Dylan. Complete side note from all of this, I, I would like to apologize in advance I am really not feeling well right now. I'm recording this um, I, today. Really, this whole week has just been very bad on my body. So if I, if I ramble a little much or if I sound rougher than normal, I apologize for that. Now, reading from the back cover. Duluth, Minnesota, 1934. A community living on a knife edge. Lost and lonely people huddled together in the local guest house. The owner, Nick, owes more money than he can ever repay. His wife Elizabeth is losing her mind, and their daughter Marianne is carrying a child no one will account for. So when a preacher selling Bibles and a boxer looking for a comeback turn up in the middle of the night, things spiral beyond the point of no return. This show opened at the Old Vic in London back in 2017, and after a brief but successful stint in England, including a London revival in 2019, it made its way to Broadway at the Belasco Theatre, opening on March 5th, 2020. This show could have easily been the next *Hades Town* and To Kill a Mockingbird at the same time. But of course, uh, COVID had other plans. But let's get into the review, shall we? Again, there will be spoilers for this script. If you'd rather avoid them, go pick up a copy, read it for yourself, then return to this episode. I won't discuss this on every episode because a lot of play scripts are just that very basic paper cover with the title and little else. If you're an actor, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But Girl from the North Country is a rare and welcome exception. A picture of what I imagine is a young Marianne, the girl from the North Country herself, with yellow highlight on the front, and then a black and yellow back cover. Uh, It feels more like a novel in terms of uh, the design, but let's not solely judge a book by its cover. However, I do really enjoy plays with something extra, something that I think gives the script and gives the aesthetic a boost. Uh, And I believe that the cover of this script really does that job well. Now, for a triggering content advisory. There is strong language throughout. uh, The use of the slur for Romani people. It's one of the song titles and in several of the lyrics. The N-word is used, but as far as I remember, it is only used by black characters. That being said, a white character drunkenly calls a black character boy... Uh, there is alcohol and cigarette usage, as well as themes of suicide, mental health, and illness, and adultery. Heavy topics for a heavy show. Uh, wh- while the title would indicate that the story follows Mary it is very much an ensemble show, with many subplots and narratives all swirling around the Lane guesthouse. Nick, the owner, is dealing with a mountain of debt, a son, Gene who seems more interested in dreams of writing than actually working a job and making money, an adopted daughter, Marianne, who is hated by society for her skin, and a wife, Elizabeth, who doesn't love him, at least when she remembers who he is. His guests include Mrs. Nielsen, the Burks who care for their son who never mentally grew up, and eventually Marlowe and Scott, the Bible salesman and the boxer, both both with dark pasts. Everyone seems to be running from something, but they're all stuck in this small house in Duluth. The show itself is narrated by Dr. Walker, a family, a family friend, and the town physician. This is just my personal opinion, but Elizabeth is one of the most brilliantly written, complex characters I've ever read. She has early onset Alzheimer's, and yet she is often the wisest and most intelligent person in the room. Jean is another character, uh, seemingly straight from a Tennessee Williams play. The wayward son who can't take on the responsibility his father expects of him. He is a brilliant mix of kind brother and lazy jerk. And the dynamic that he has with his father is something to behold. Their scenes are dynamite. Really, there's not a single character, though, in this show that's not well-developed or too simple or that leaves more to be desired. Each has their own struggles and fears, their triumphs and defeats. And each is unique and strong on their own. The plot itself is rather simple, more revolving around a few days near Thanksgiving and and dealing with the emotional battles of each character. We start with an introduction of each character. Nick has developed a sort of tryst with Mrs. Nielsen, promising to run off with her once her late husband's will goes through. And of course, in an effort to protect his children, Nick tries to convince Gene to get a job on the railroad instead of pursuing his writing career. He also attempts coaxing Marianne, who is nearly five months pregnant, to marry a local shop owner, Mr. Perry. Both conversations end poorly. Uh, Toward the end of the night, two more guests join the house, Marlowe and Joe Scott. Marlowe is smooth-talking and far too amiable. Throughout the first act, we see a scene of Gene and his former sweetheart, Kate, saying goodbye, scenes where Scott and Marianne begin to hit it off, and a scene between Marlowe and the Burks. Now, their son, Elias, not knowing any better because of his mental handicap, had killed a girl. That's why they were on the run. Marlowe figures this out and begins to blackmail them. Uh, the first act, however, ends with a confrontation between Nick and Marianne. His frustration at not being able to protect her and provide for her spills over into this form of anger at her rejecting Mr. Perry. Act two opens up with a sort of pre-Thanksgiving party. Everyone is there, drinking, having a good time, except tensions have been building. Mrs. Nielsen has no inheritance from her husband, and decides that she must leave. Mr. Perry tries again to convince Marianne to marry him, but it just leads to a confrontation, albeit a brilliantly written one, between the two of them. And in his drunken state, Mr. Burke, having taken his son Elias for a walk, kills him. It's utterly tragic, but we see a man ruined by the crash and the depression, unable to deal with his son's learning disability, finally falling apart into a complete wreck. Nick, too, is at the end of his rope, and in one final conversation with his son, gives Jean all the money he has left. Nick tells his son that the only way out for him is through a bullet. Thanksgiving morning, all of the guests leave. Marlowe is run out after trying to steal from Elizabeth. Mrs. Nielsen leaves for her sister. The Burks head back north to bury their son, and Scott runs off with Marianne. The only two left in the house are Elizabeth and Nick. I kid you not, the final scene between husband and wife is one of the most gorgeous moments I've ever read in a play. As Nick holds the gun intended for them both, Elizabeth reminds him of their story. Of how they fell in and then out of love. How they hated one another until she lost her mind. And then, of course, he was stuck with her. Quote, Until she loses her mind, and then you're stuck with her. You have her forever. So what do you say we live a little longer? Elizabeth removes the bullets from the gun, and they disappear to the west. End of scene, end of act, end of play. Something I should mention, and a theme I'd very much like to point out, is Dr. Walker. He acts as a sort of omniscient narrator for the play, and in the final moments he explains what happens to Nick, Elizabeth, and their family, and the audience is made aware that he, as the narrator, is a ghost. Now, it's something I'll get into after some of the quotes that I liked, but this play deals in the abstract, and almost supernaturally decent amount, and to great effect. I'll try to keep this brief because there's so many great scenes, and a lot of times the dialogue, being organic, is more of a tennis match between one-sentence lines back and forth, not the most conducive for just one person trying to read through them. Now, I adore the scenes between Nick and Gene, and the scene between Jean and Kate. Any scene where Elizabeth is talking is golden, because her dialogue is so difficult to pull off correctly. Uh, Now, speaking of great exchanges, here's a conversation in Act 1 between Marlowe and Mr. Burke. Marlowe. Sweet. That's very sweet. You plan on putting some roots down here, or are you just passing through? Burke. I guess we'll just be moving on. I came down here chasing a debtor, gave me the runaround. Everybody chasing everybody else. You know how it is. Marlowe. You have creditors on your heels, too? Burke. Everybody gotta wait in line, just like everybody else. The scene in Act 2 between Mr. Perry and Marianne is also so well written. The title song is sung almost as an underscore as Mr. Perry lifts off, lifts off Marianne's dire situation and his own mortality. Quoting from part of that monologue. Now, you and me both got a chance. My wife came and told me in a dream, Marianne. My wife. You just get in under my roof, girl, and I won't never touch you. That's a promise. Nobody chooses to get old. Everybody fights it, but it kicks your ass. You can't win. You move slower and slower because you can't go fast. It hurts. Pain's got you surrounded. There's a dozen other quotes and passages I'd read, but I am trying to keep this script within a page limit. Now, I am very excited to introduce a new segment to the podcast, Discussion on the Music. There was a brief conversation on the music in last week's episode, but it was just background music, not actually musical tracks. This week is our first musical on the podcast. Uh, Well, sort of. As I mentioned previously, the music is Bob Dylan's This is a Jukebox Musical. For anyone who's not familiar with that term, uh, it's, it's a musical that utilizes pre-existing work, normally from a, f- a famous artist. Uh, a good example of this would be Mamma Mia, um, but there's jukebox musicals for pretty much every band or recording artist in existence. Normally, they're not very good because they try to fit the script to the music, and that's that's a big problem. Back on track, though. The orchestration and arrangement has been retrofitted to be 1930s appropriate. Uh, songs have been mashed up beautifully in order to get different emotions and in order to connect to different characters throughout the story. And like I said, where some jukebox musicals simply try to force the lyrics and songs to fit the scenes in the dialogue, Girl from the North Country doesn't. Instead, it uses the music as a way to build the world and the characters' internal lives. As one reviewer put it, the music belongs to a parallel universe, a realm that abuts the dreary reality of the place here and now, but never overlaps it. The characters step into a dream world of song, pouring their hearts out without ever being too tied to the earthly, gritty reality that they seem eager to escape. A great example of this is the song I Want You. Nick and Kate have just essentially broken up and determined that they can't ever be together. However, the song indicates something entirely different. In their souls, they still long for each other. We see Elias's ghost in Act Two singing up into the rafters on Duquesne Whistle, finally free of his inhibited mind and body. I, I'm not going to try to critique the recording itself, but I highly encourage each and every one of you to go listen to it. Uh, I remember as I was reading, I was writing down notes as I was listening to the songs within the script just blown away by the different actors' voices on the recording. Um, If you do read the script, I highly encourage you to listen to the music and listen to the recording while you're going through the script. The lyrics are raw, the performances are powerful, and the songs themselves emotionally frame the script so beautifully. The only flaw in this show is timing, really. Uh, opening on Broadway literally two weeks before the pandemic shut everything down. Fortunately, the American production was able to garner some glowing reviews before it was canceled, or I'm sorry, not canceled, but put on hold. Now quoting Ben Brantley of the New York Times, Yet while this singular production, which opened on Thursday night at the Belasco Theater under McPherson's luminous direction, evokes the Great Depression with uncompromising bleakness, it is ultimately the opposite of depressing. That's because McPherson hears America singing in the dark, and those voices light up the night with the radiance of divine grace, a fluent fusion of seemingly incompatible elements. Girl occupies territory previously unmapped on Broadway, and it speaks its own hypnotic language, end quote. Bob Dylan himself saw the show and was moved to tears, quoting him now from an interview with Douglas Brinkley, also of the New York Times. Quote, Sure, I've seen it. And it affected me. I saw it as an anonymous spectator, not as someone who had anything to do with it. I just let it happen. The play had me crying at the end. I can't even say why. When the curtain came down, I was stunned. I really was. Too bad Broadway shut down because I wanted to see it again, end quote. I've read Tennessee Williams. I've read Arthur Miller, August Wilson, and all of the great playwrights of the last century whose names escape me. I cannot tell you the last time I read a play, much less a musical, that had such realness and emotional honesty packed in its pages. Uh, Truly, I finished reading the script about three days ago at the time of this episode's release, and I'm still shaking over moments and scenes. And of course, the songs. I've had the album on repeat all week. Bob Dylan truly is one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. Despite the darkness and the hardship showcased in this story, there's such a lightness and a hope, a sense of redemption, a glimmering ray of sun through all the storm clouds. It really, even though we're in a different time now, the same emotions, the same sense of hope and and struggle and uh, difficulty that that people experienced in the 1930s, I think it's still very applicable to today. And I think that there's something that, in our situation now, we can take from these stories that are set in a different time, in a different world. And I'm not the, necessarily the best person to talk about this. Um, and certainly, it's, it's not the sole focus of the story. But I would be amiss if I didn't talk about and at least praise the way in which race is viewed and dealt with in this story. It may have gotten lost in the synopsis, but... Marianne is adopted and she is black. And certainly Nick loves his daughter. But he can't fully understand her world. And sometimes he reacts poorly to things because he doesn't understand really what she has to deal with. Or what Scott has to deal with. Um, I could be completely wrong. Uh, Like I said, I am not at all the right person to really dive into that too deeply but I believe that there is special care and consideration given to the topic of race in this story in a way that's powerful and, and kind of unique um, I, I really ought to make a larger ranking system based off of this show 5 out of 5 feels too little too simplistic for Girl from the North Country. And I know that I rate a lot of shows 5 out of 5. In fact, I think all three episodes now have been 5 out of 5. But this show truly is one of the best scripts that I've ever read. I am so, so glad that the Broadway production is only on hiatus right now and not completely gone. Anyone who has the opportunity to see a production of Girl should consider themselves lucky beyond measure. I've talked so much about what I loved already. Certainly, there's very little to nothing that I can think of that I didn't like. Not a bad moment, not a weak link. Please, please, please go find a copy of this script. Listen to the recording. I'll include links to both where you can buy the script and where you can listen to the recording in the description. And when Broadway reopens, buy a ticket. I'd give just about anything to be involved in this show. Uh, It's certainly now joined the ranks of my bucket list both to see and to be a part of. I'm at a loss for words, except for the around 8,000 or so that I just wrote for this episode. It truly is a show that everyone should want to see. Everyone should want to uh, be a part of if you're an actor or a, a production member or a director I, you guys, again, I'm going off script again, but, but holy cow, it's, it, I'm still shook. (laughs) It's such a good script and everything I've seen about the productions, both London and Broadway, it's just phenomenal. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And there's so much that I, I don't have time to talk about or that I've forgotten to talk about that it's just, oh You guys, it's so amazing. I'm sorry. I'm going to get back on my script now. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. It really means a lot to see the support here and on my Instagram. Uh, Seeing those listens come in on the metrics, seeing likes and follows on Instagram, it's been really encouraging for me. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or recommendations for future episodes, please shoot me a message. You can find the podcast and I at the script library on Instagram or at the WC cloud on Twitter. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. Oh, and I nearly forgot. I have an episode dropping next Monday. These episodes come out the same time every week, Monday morning ish. I don't know what the script will be. So my plan is to host a poll on Instagram on my story. So once you finish listening to this, Head over to my Instagram, vote in that poll, and um, let me know what the next episode is going to be. Again, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for stopping by the Script Library.